AviationPros.com is the portal website for AMT, airport business, and ground support worldwide magazines. Visit daily for breaking news, industry blogs, and insightful articles from our magazine's editorial team. And don't forget to sign up for our publication's daily e-newsletters. It's all at AviationPros.com. Per and polyfluoroalkyl alkyl substances, often abbreviated as PFAS or PFAS, have come under increasing scrutiny over the past years. This family of chemicals, sometimes called forever chemicals, have been found in many products and industrial applications around the world. For the aviation industry, they're most commonly found in the foam used to combat airfield fires. But what exactly are PFAS, and what is the danger posed by them? In this episode, I'm joined by Rosa Gwynn. Global PFAS Technical Leader for AECOM, and Scott Wilson, CEO and President of Regenesis, to discuss the harm these chemicals pose to people in the environment and what can be done about them. Rosa, Scott, thank you again for taking the time this morning to chat with me. I think the best way to kick off our conversation is if you could just give our audience kind of an overview of the PFAS, a kind of group of chemicals, uh, what they are, and why they've gotten so much attention in the past couple of years. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. This is Rosa Gwynn. I'm with AECOM, and, and I've been working on what you called PFAS, but all the cool kids call PFAS. Um, for a number of years. And so PFAS is an acronym or an abbreviation, and it stands for PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And that certainly sounds like a mouthful, but but really it's easy to, to visualize. Go back to your high school chemistry. If you have a bunch of carbon atoms connected together and things like sugars and other natural organic compounds, that's pretty common. And what's unique about PFAS is that some or all of those uh, parts of the carbon chain uh, are connected to fluorine atoms. In normal circumstances, let's say those would be hydrogen atoms, but fluorine is has been pushed onto these carbons. What does that mean? It means you've got a chain of carbons with these fluorines on it, and those bonds don't like to be broken. So it creates a super stable compound, super stable, because the chlorine, I'm sorry, the carbon fluorine bond is one of the strongest covalent bonds in nature. And so these compounds were developed uh, initially in the 1940s. They're all synthetic, none of them occur in nature. And they, because of this strong bond, they had these great characteristics. They're very resistant to thermal degradation, and they're not sticky. Things don't stick to them. Why? Well, because the compounds are satisfied chemically. So one of the most well-known PFAS compounds is Teflon, uh, but there are actually thousands and thousands, many thousands of these synthetic compounds uh, that have been generated for industrial use. So that's what PFAS are, and, um, 
and we use them in a whole bunch of industrial applications and as a consequence we have them all around us on the planet so that's what PFAS are and then what exactly is the danger or concern with them yeah so because of this incredible stability especially for what is called the perfluorinated compounds they have a characteristic uh, I mentioned earlier that they resist thermal and chemical and biological degradation but that very characteristic uh, creates a problem when PFAS are released into the environment let's say through air emissions or uh, being discarded from their original use and that characteristic is that they're persistent and and they are bioaccumulative meaning once they're out there and if like the little tiny fish ingests a PFAS compound and the next fish uh, ingests the PFAS compound that up the food chain like you learned in elementary school those those are building up they are bioaccumulating and here's the real kicker some of the PFAS are not very good for human beings and they're also not good for some animals and we don't know a lot you know I mentioned that there are thousands of these compounds and in it in order to understand their toxicity uh, we do testing of each compound so we only know about a handful but what we see is not not very good um, so they're persistent they're bioaccumulative and they're toxic at low concentrations the result of them having been entered into the environment over a long period of time means that they're kind of everywhere I cringe when I say that because they're not everywhere you can take lots of samples that don't contain PFAS at detectable levels but they have appeared in places on the planet where they shouldn't be one example is a study done in the 2000s uh, where PFAS were identified in polar bear blood well I mentioned this bioaccumulation and again remembering back to your elementary school training about the food pyramid and top of the food chain those polar bears are top predators and as a consequence they have been exposed through the entire food chain to some PFAS that has entered into the ocean and fish and so on seals etc so the danger is that they're toxic and the danger is that they're appearing where they shouldn't be and then when we turn to the aviation industry specifically where have these PFAS chemicals been um, commonly used and kind of who or where has been put most at risk by them very good question so PFAS are closely linked to aviation and the reason is that this great compound characteristic made uh, certain PFAS very valuable as an addition uh, into firefighting foam and so go back again to your your childhood chemistry we know that oil and water don't mix so when you have a fuel spill at an aviation site heaven forbid a plane crash um, well if the firefighters showed up and they sprayed water on it it's hard to put that fire out right because of the natural tendency for those things to be immiscible if you add some of these PFAS compounds to the water that characteristic of the compound was this 
tail that doesn't interact means that you can actually get the water to, to with this foaming component to sit on top of that oil and put out that fire even better puts it out extremely fast and it keeps it from burning back and you can imagine that the safety associated with a burn back fire situation is pretty significant you know you would send a firefighter into a situation where he or she could you know subsequently be injured because you know the flames would return so the aviation industry has had as a standard the use of AFFF or aqueous film forming foams that contain PFAS compounds, and that's been the standard since adopted by the Department of Defense in the 1960s and then later by the FAA and really globally uh, later in the 70s. So, great, we've got these firefighting foams, and you might say, well, Rosa, there are very few plane crashes. Why would this be so prevalent at aviation sites? Well, the answer is, Firefighters have to train. They have to understand how to use aqueous film forming foam, which we call AFFF for short. They have to understand how to use it. So in the event of an emergency, they're fully prepared and capable of performing their job safely and quickly. So there is a standard that every uh, aviation firefighter will have been trained on AFFF use annually. That was an FAA requirement. And Many of those activities happened at uh, uh, airfields, and they often happened where this was released directly onto the ground, and everybody was happy because there was no known environmental concern, and these materials were released in liquid form onto the ground surface or into a fire training area, and lo and behold, they've entered into the subsurface. And, And that's where the link to aviation is very strong with some PFAS compounds. So then where are we today with PFAS? Are they still being utilized? And how do we remove these chemicals once they get into the environment? So that's really a two-part question. The first part is, are they still being used? And the answer is yes, there's some applications. There's certainly many applications where PFAS in some form are being used. Of course, Teflon, for example, still being used. Um, But there are some PFAS that have been restricted for manufacturing in the United States because they're considered particularly concerning. And I mentioned earlier that some, we we know toxicological information on a few. So yeah, efforts have been made to remove these so-called long chain PFAS compounds and specifically uh, one known as PFOS or PFOS for short is, was used in firefighting foam, that is is no longer a standard component of foam. So that's number one. We've removed sort of some of the bad actors. The second part uh, of that uh, uh, concern is how do you train? We still need to train. We still need to put out fires. But what we can do is be much more environmentally conscientious about how we train. So you can capture that foam. You can capture all of that training water, uh, and and you can uh, not release it into the environment. But then the next part of your question is, you know, how, how do we remove them from the environment? And that's, uh, that's pretty tricky. So, uh, you know, they're in a lot of places where they shouldn't be. So you have to find where they are first. 
And then if they're in groundwater, you may need to capture that groundwater either you know, by pulling it out of the ground or uh, engaging it in some other way in the ground surface, or it might be in surface water. PFAS might be in surface water. So how do you get them out of the environment? Well, that comes back to no longer releasing them and where they've been released, being sure you intercept them before they, uh, those PFAS or PFAS-containing environmental media reach a receptor. That's like a human, you know, it sounds really anodyne, a receptor. But it's a person or a group of people who might, I don't know, get that PFAS pulled up in their groundwater well, right? So you want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, so that that's not fully answering your question, how do you remove them? It's a little closer to answering the question, how do we manage them? The removal question is a little more complicated. The single most important thing is to protect people and animals that are at risk from being exposed to high levels of PFAS, the high enough levels to cause a toxic response. That's the most important thing. So what you're trying to do is make sure there's no PFAS in people's drinking water or very low levels of PFAS. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Hi, Walker. This is Scott Wilson with Regenesis. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll join Rosa on this one, and that, and that is uh, relating to the impact of uh, PFAS compounds on receptors such as surface waters or, or, or humans or drinking water. And I, you know, I, I can't agree more that the main, uh, the, the main goal here is to remove the risk to, to any potential receptors. An environmental risk is really nothing more than um, the product of, of the hazard itself times the potential for exposure. So if you were to remove the potential for exposure, you've removed the potential for the risk. And so what, what we're really about in handling PFAS is to, is to remove the risk to receptors. So that was, that was well put, Rosa. And speaking of um, removing this risk, how do we think the um, Biden administration's focus on environmental issues um, will impact PFAS regulations? I can tell you that the Biden administration, in the run-up to the, to the campaign, made some promises to, to regulate two of the, uh, the most studied and probably most bioaccumulative of the PFAS chemicals, and that's the PFOA that Rosa responded to, as well as the PFOS. And um, those two compounds have been, have been studied, and recently, after the election, the new administration on the 22nd of January actually came forward and said that they will, in fact, they have made a final determination to move forward with regulating uh, PFOA and PFOS under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And what that means is that there will be a hard and fast regulatory standard at the federal level. Uh, up until this point, there's only been guidance in, instead of hard, fast regulations at the federal level. So this is a big step forward, and this will this will drive a standard for PFOA and PFOS. The process of actually setting those goals will probably take 12 to 18 months or so, but uh, that's coming down the pike. And the other the other facet is whether the Biden administration will regulate any PFAS compounds under the 
the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, which is called CERCLA or Superfund. On January 14th, there was actually a pre-publication pre version of what's known as an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which actually says, hey, I think we should start looking at making this a hazardous waste under CERCLA. So while that's not final, there is movement towards making it considered a hazardous waste. And if, if, if it is deemed a hazardous waste under CERCLA, it would put a, a whole new complexion on what you would have to do with any, any waste materials that contain PFAS or, or PFOS or PFAS. Now they would have to be uh, ultimately disposed of in a, in a hazardous waste landfill or incinerated at a hazardous waste incinerator. So that's that's uh, really the implication that that uh, of such a such a, a regulation. I would like to add that the hazardous substance designation is under discussion that that you just mentioned uh, is also fraught with one other angle, and that is there are those who believe all PFAS and not only PFAS and PFOA should be designated as hazardous substances. And when you're talking about thousands of compounds, that becomes very complicated. Um, mm. So as you can imagine, that's part of the decision making uh, for these uh, regulatory limits. Uh, it, it's, it's just, you know, PFAS just are always a little more complicated because there's so many and, and because they're a little bit unusual. They have their own special chemistry. Anyway, just thought I'd add that. And piggybacking off that idea, um, what concerns do you see with the creation of um, formal regulations that would require the concentration uh, or destruction methods of treatment? Well, it might surprise you to hear that despite a great deal of energy being put into figuring out how to destroy these compounds, there is really there really are limited options in that area. Uh, so uh, actually, I should let Scott speak to that. Well, it's uh, it, when it comes to cleaning up uh, environmental uh, impacts of PFAS, uh, especially at aviation facilities, the real liability lies uh, in in the groundwater and soil, and that's the large, huge cost associated with these these. Uh, Environmental impacts, and if if you if you uh, just just to review what groundwater is, groundwater is not rivers of water moving beneath the surface. It's really simply rainwater that's that's moved downward through the soil and filled the pores of the soil and or bedrock with water until as it moves down until it hits an impermeable layer. So there's water sitting under the surface of the ground. And this tends to move with topography. In other words, the water will flow downhill. Um, and the concern here uh, is that uh, if, if, if there's a, a fire training area that used PFAS, uh, that the groundwater and soil beneath that is impacted. And over time, it migrates off the facility in what's called a plume, P-L-U-M-E, a plume of contamination. And as Rosa said, the, 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 the fear here is, is that that impacts a surface water body uh, or, or a drinking water supply well. So that's the real risk here. So the, the way that, 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 that remediation is, has traditionally been carried out 
is uh, environmental engineering firms move out into the field and try to capture that plume by putting in wells and pumping the polluted water to the surface and then filtering out the PFAS. And uh, you know, the, 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 the concern here is the huge cost of putting in wells and pumping that water uh, to get down to really low levels. One of, one of the things we haven't mentioned here is that the regulatory levels uh, that have been put in at the state level uh, and, and the guidance from the, the EPA has been in the parts per trillion. This is like a, a thimble full in, in, in Olympic swimming pools. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a very, very low standard. And in order to get that collected, all of that PFAS out of the subsurface so that any more water remaining in the subsurface has less than 70 parts per trillion, which was the combined guidance for PFOS and PFOA from the EPA. It takes a huge amount of pumping and water that has to be removed from the subsurface, and then it has to be filtered. And when you filter it out onto a, a filter medium like a canister filter of charcoal or something like that, you, you then have to dispose of that and potentially in a hazardous waste landfill at a very high cost. So we, we, the pumping and treating, it's called pump and treat, is, is a very inefficient and, and not a very attractive uh, approach for treating PFAS in groundwater. That led, us, we, we, that led us at Regenesis to study other alternatives where we could simply convert the polluted aquifer itself, the polluted subsurface, into a purifying filter. So what we've, what we've done is we've developed a, an advanced technology where we take uh, a, a coconut fiber charcoal and we mill it down to the size of a red blood cell. So it looks like black ink. And we actually pour that into the aquifer, into the subsurface through wells, where it coats the entire aquifer surface that's impacted with, with this charcoal. And the result is that it strips all the PFAS out of the water and onto the aquifer matrix itself, locking it up. So we thereby eliminate the potential for exposure to, to any receptors down gradient, and therefore we eliminate the risk of the PFAS. So we actually lock it up right where we inject the plume stop. We lock the PFAS up. It doesn't migrate anymore out of the. It doesn't migrate in the groundwater anymore. And uh, we've this 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 approach now has been used on 16 sites around the world. And currently, it's it's uh, in design and regulatory approval on a hundred other projects. And it's it's just the beginning. It's starting to 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 uh, be used widely uh, as probably the most the most uh, popular way to, to handle PFAS in the subsurface simply because you don't have the cost of pumping and treating. The other thing with pumping, trying to capture all these plumes of PFAS with pumping is the amount of energy it takes. And the, the actual generation of that energy that's used to pump for, for generations is what it'll take of pumping. It, the, the carbon footprint of that's huge. Uh, the amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere from generating the electricity used to pump the subsurface. So if we can avoid pumping the subsurface, tie up this PFAS, it eliminates the risk down gradient. So we're seeing, we're seeing this, this technique of, of 
of treating PFAS uh, growing in popularity. And I think with the with the Biden administration setting Safe Drinking Water Act standards and the potential for CERCLA hazardous waste designations for these compounds, I think people will want to keep the contamination in the subsurface and lock it up. How long will this plume stop barrier then um, be effective in treating PFAS? Yeah, so when, when you put the plume stop in the subsurface, it, 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 it's really a zone of the aquifer that's now treated. So it's, 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 it's a, we, we call it a barrier, but it's really a, a permeable barrier. Water moves through at the same rate that it always did. It's just being filtered out. And, um, you know, third-party researchers uh, at academic institutions have studied this in detail of how long this, 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 we call it plume stop, because it stops the plume in place. This colloidal activated carbon plume stop material, it, it, uh, researchers have come back and said it, it, on the order of decades of the single injection. So if you, put, if you put plume stop in the aquifer and convert it to a purifying filter, it should, should last for 30 to 50 years, depending with a single injection. And if, if, if there's a, a, an additional spill or continuing uh, contamination coming from upgradient, um, you know, you can always simply add another injection and uh, and renew the uh, renew the the barrier properties for for decades more. There there are several sites that have been that have been treated. The, the longest operating sites in excess of about five years now, and and uh, researchers, independent researchers, think that site will probably last another 40 years with a single injection. So is this something then that can be applicable at an airport? What should airports um, keep in mind if they choose to go with this route? Yeah, we actually have uh, the plume stop material going in to protect two airports in the UK. Uh, there's another one here in the US. And so it's, it's already been adapted by them as, a, as the low cost solution for treating with PFAS and groundwater. I, I'd like to make a comment that we're, we're applying lessons and best practices that have been developed since the passage of the Safe Drinking Water Act for 30 plus years in the United States. People have been working to develop ways of understanding groundwater contamination, plume migration, and uh, how the chemistry of a contaminant uh, has to be leveraged for us to uh, best solve the problem of environmental contamination and protecting these receptors that we've talked about. Receptors are, are things like people, like you and me. And what, P, what makes PFAS so unusual is not just their association with the aviation industry and not only the stories you might hear about how prevalent they are in unusual places. What, what makes PFAS sort of the mother of all contamination problems is related to their stability their persistence, their toxicity at very low levels, and their chemistry that makes them highly resistant to degradation in any form. And as a consequence, the conundrum of finding destructive methodologies. But the collective genius of environmental scientists and engineers has solved difficult problems in the past. And this is just sort of like our PhD level problem. You know, PFAS is, is the toughest of all that we've had to date. And uh, we're going to have to use every tool that we can. We have to buy time while we develop 
tools that are destructive and there will not be a silver bullet, meaning there will not be one solution that fits all PFAS environmental concerns. So we've got a lot of work to do, but it's exciting because it's tough. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Aviation Pros Podcast. Be sure to visit AviationPros.com for more stories, breaking news, and expert insight from all around the aviation industry.